0: As a copywriter, there are all kinds of things that you need to know. On the one hand, you need to know how to do the actual writing, persuasion, frameworks, and how to get readers and prospects to take action. And On the other hand, if you're a freelancer, you need to know how to find and land clients, manage projects and processes, and market yourself. And If you're working in-house or for an agency, you might not be landing clients, but you have to know how to work with a team, stand up for your ideas, and promote yourself to get the best opportunities. What almost no one thinks about is legal stuff. Yeah, you have to choose a legal entity if you start your business, but most of us don't really think through the implications of that as we're doing it. And you may have a legal contract that you likely borrowed from another writer. In fact, we have a good template in the Copywriter Underground if you don't already have your own. But beyond that, most of us would rather ignore just about anything to do with the law. Hi, I'm Rob Marsh, one of the founders of the Copywriter Club, and on today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, Kira and I interviewed attorney Taylor Timon, who helped set us straight when it comes to the cavalier attitude most of us have when it comes to the law. While this episode may not teach you a lot about writing or business building, it could save you from some pretty seriously costly legal hassles and so you should definitely stick around to listen to what Taylor has to share. But before we dive in with what Taylor told us, the Copywriter Accelerator is coming and fast. We're open to new members right after the Labor Day weekend, and whether you're a copywriter, a content writer, a marketer, or a social media strategist, you've probably felt the shift that's happened in the marketing world over the past year. Part of it is AI and tools like ChatGPT. Part of it is an economy that isn't working for everyone the way that it should. And part of it is the competition that we're all facing from a growing number of copywriters and content writers in the world, more than 2 million of them at last count. So how do you stand out? How do you break through the noise and become the only person your prospects want to work with? That's what the Copywriter Accelerator helps you do. It's not a course. It's a group program that you work through with your peers. You'll get strategic direction that you need to build a stronger business. You're going to get coaching to help you think through your messaging and products and prices. And you get support from a group of smart, engaged copywriters who are going through the same program with you. Nearly 500 copywriters have gone through the Copywriter Accelerator and used it to land better clients. They've used it to change their niche and their brand, and they've used it to create new products and services. Not to mention grow their support network. If you're thinking this sounds interesting, you owe it to yourself to find out more. Even if you ultimately decide it's not right for you right now, be sure to check out the CopywriterAccelerator.com. Doors open right after Labor Day, so click. Over to the copywriteraccelerator.com to learn more now. Okay, now let's jump into our interview with Taylor Timon.
1: I opened my practice now four years ago. Um, so it's been a journey. Uh, I've been an attorney for about seven years and I was working in civil litigation firms here in Los Angeles and just was always kind of going back to, I wanted to be working in transactional law. So like contracts, filings, all the stuff that usually people think is is pretty boring. I really like that stuff. Um, so I had seen that there were some attorneys that were offering really unique services to business owners. I had no idea that that was even Something you could do as a solo practitioner. So I kind of got inspired from some other attorneys I met, and also saw that uh, my specific community, which is uh, Latinx business owners, uh, we just don't have a ton of attorneys that people can reach out to. So I saw somewhat of an opportunity to be able to to hop in and and help them out with their with their business legal protections, um, and it's been it's been really fun.
0: So tell us more about Legal Media. Uh, what you do, the kinds of businesses that you serve. Like, you know, what does the day to day look like? Your your typical project.
1: Yeah. So we serve uh, majority female business owners, uh, Latinx business owners, uh, BIPOC owned, female owned businesses that are either in their infancy or right around like three to five year mark, we'll, we'll get businesses coming in finally looking for, for legal assistance because they can actually afford it um, and budget out for it. Um, and I have a remote office. I work from home. I strategically wanted to be able to offer those services and also just for me to be able to run a business from home because, uh, you know, starting a family requires a lot of work. We don't have kids yet, but that's in the plans for us. Uh, So I do mostly all my work from home. We have some co-working spots that we'll go meet clients at if they prefer in-person meetings. But a majority of our clients are super busy and they have, uh, you know, this is their part-time business or they're a lot of them are moms with kids that need very flexible meeting times. So, uh, yeah, we work from here and and we work with mostly mostly newer businesses
2: as you've worked with the newer businesses what surprised you the most early on um maybe that many of us like don't know or that we didn't do that we really should have done yeah i think coming in from a traditional law
1: firm atmosphere i didn't i mean we're i deal with law every day so i think i just thought that businesses had a general understanding of Legal being important, but after hopping into this arena, I found that like a lot of businesses just didn't have the education around it. Um, And it was a thing that if they did, they were like really avoiding having to deal with it. So that hurdle of, you know, being somebody that somebody felt comfortable approaching for legal help, just asking and then also presenting information and a lot of education has was a major shift when I first started. I first was just like, how do I let people know I offer these services? And then it became very much like, we have to educate a lot on these topics so that businesses even are aware that it's something that they need.
0: So uh, a question for you, Taylor, I, I, I want to push it a little bit more towards our, our discussion, a little bit more towards our audience. So we're talking to copywriters and so often copywriters will you know, look at their business and say, I don't, I mean, maybe I need a, an agreement with my clients, but I don't really worry about bad things happening for, for you know, for me. And it's probably true most of the time. But t- like, let's set the stage. Like, what are some of the things that go wrong in solopreneur, you know, single owner businesses that an attorney can help with?
1: Yeah. So, if, like, number one problem is just payment issues. Um, and having worked with tons of copywriters ourselves, it is. I, just the structure of the payment sometimes is a client will try and dip out like halfway through, and then they're trying to figure out, like, well, how do I get them to pay me? And when they do come to us with that problem, my first question is, like, where's the contract? Can I see like how you structured it? And if they have no contract, then we are all the way back to square one trying to figure out, can we enforce something against the client of having to pay, which is a lot of time, a lot of stress. And then you end up paying an attorney. their time to help you try and figure out the problem that if we had a contract in the first place, we can just kind of jump to it and see what we can do. Um, So payments, like number one issue, I would say also uh, intellectual property issues of, you know, what the copywriter is providing and then being able to communicate to the client, you know, what they're creating for them what they're potentially either keeping ownership of or allowing them to use and use in their portfolio. And then being able to have that conversation with the client as well of like, here's what I'm giving you. Here's what you now own. Uh, Just being comfortable with those intellectual property conversations is another key conversation that we're having with, with copywriters and then also just service providers in general, cause the, those issues are tricky. And, uh, if you don't have any background or knowledge about it, copywriters usually have a pretty good sense of like, I know I need to know this, but it's not always as fleshed out as it, as it should be.
2: What are some best practices when it comes to ownership? What, what are we supposed to do there?
1: <laughs> yeah. So typically what we're seeing like industry standard is copywriters are creating the copy And then they are hopefully charging the client enough to be able to just transfer the ownership over to the client. So they're essentially uh, working for the client, passing ownership to them and getting paid fairly for what they're providing. Um, Sometimes if we don't have an agreement between copywriter and client, that's not very clear or it's not clear to the client on the other end if there's no agreement that that material remains copyright. Uh, owned by the copywriter until it's transferred over to them. So being able to clearly convey that as the copywriter providing the service is really important because if I'm on the other end receiving that service, I am assuming like I just own this and I don't. Uh, But I think also being able to convey that clearly allows copywriters to really stand firm in what they're charging and feel comfortable with what they're charging because the transfer of intellectual property that's like that's ownership of something so being able to confidently say like look I'm giving you full ownership of something I created for you this is why our prices are x y z
2: well is impossible. possible I mean, why like why can't we both own it you know I want to own the copy because I wrote it and then you want to own it because I wrote it for you but is there, I mean, I'm sure there are a billion problems connected to that and it's not a 50-50 partnership. <laughs> it's ownership. So it's different. But can you talk through some of the potential problems when that doesn't go well?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that is an option too. Um, But then if you own it 50-50, then it's kind of like, you, it, it's a marriage. Like you both own 50% of the copy. And if the client wants to go take it and use it for something. They're going to have to ask you for permission, and same thing in in return. Um, so what I like to see as a copywriter, if they're handing off ownership, they're still retaining a license to use it, show it that you know this is a, a website I worked on, or like this is a, a campaign that I helped the client with, um, so that you can still say like these are things I've worked on, um, but client, you know, you can own this. It's, you can have 50 50, or if you're the copywriter and you want to maintain the ownership, um, that's also still an option, but most clients are going to want to ideally own it. But if, you know, maybe you're working with a client that like can't afford a ton right now, and you're like, all right, maybe I'll keep the ownership until later and we'll transfer it over later. Sometimes we see that with service
0: providers. So I, I don't want to necessarily ask you to write copy or legal uh, wording on the fly, but how would you phrase that? Is it phrased as a right granted to the the creator or is it, um, is it actually ownership? Like what does that even look like in the contract?
1: Yeah. So usually there's a in most service agreements and then copywriting services agreements, there's some sort of section about intellectual property and we are basically conveying the rights to the copy that's created to the client. So it'll say like, you know, we're transferring it over to you. Um, and then what we usually have in there, or we'll toss in there is that the copywriter is going to maintain a license to showcase whatever it is that they have created, or at least like link back to the client's site so that they can show that and show, you know, potential future clients and it's it's usually somewhere in like an intellectual property paragraph or provision in the contract
0: okay and then just as a follow-up to that what about um, previous drafts revisions and other ideas that maybe the client doesn't land on how do you make I think this is particularly true of ideas as opposed to um, you know drafts because drafts are going to be relatively similar, but how do you make sure that those stay your property and the client doesn't assume that, Hey, they presented me 12 headlines and I could use any of these 12 headlines, even though it's not in the final product.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We can explicitly state that the client will only own like the final product. Um, you know, drafts are excluded, especially if you're offering several drafts and, you know, you think that that might work for a different client later. Um, we want to be clear on, you know, final draft is what the, what the client owns um, it does get a little blurry with like ideas versus what's tangible. Um, so like the idea to go a certain direction is difficult to, to protect from an, uh, IP standpoint. Um, but that's where if we have a good confidentiality provision in our contract client, ideally cannot take that idea and then go to another copywriter and be like, Hey, I, we were going to go this direction. Um, but, yeah, the, being, being really clear about which drafts and which versions also is important.
2: What about, uh, like, a sloppy handoff, I guess? what When does the ownership handoff take place, especially if you have multiple payments over a couple of months of a project?
1: Yeah, we can be um, – usually it's, like, completion of payment or if they want to be more specific about, you know – we're doing one handoff of one section if that payment's completed. Uh, but usually at the transfer of like the file or completed project, then the ownership is going over. Because what we do sometimes in the agreements is say, like, look, if the client has not paid the remainder of what's due, then copywriter retains ownership because that's another way that we can encourage a client that maybe isn't paying to be like, look, if you don't finish paying, like you're not going to own the copy and I can potentially then sue you for copyright infringement. So you should really pay up.
2: Yeah. I mean, even if you're owning, if it's a larger project and let's say the client does pay maybe like, I don't know, 60% of the project fee, but for some reason you have to wrap up the project and end it, I could see them saying, well, I should own part of it at least. Is -hmm. that a possibility?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what we usually do is draft contract, assuming that whole project's going to go through. But if we need to amend or change the contract in the meantime, like let's say project just has to end at 60%, we would ideally be modifying the contract and then amending it so that both parties agree, like, look, we've both agreed that we're only going to hit the 60% 60 mark. And from there, you know, I can take ownership of, you know, what was created, but everything else drafts wise, like, isn't mine as the client. So we can always amend our agreements, but those have to be done properly in writing, because if we're changing something from what we've both signed to begin with, then both parties have to be on board. Both should ideally be signing and acknowledging like, look, this is what we're changing.
0: So it sounds like we can do pretty much anything we want. It just it's just about putting it into writing so both sides agree. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Contracts are really cool because you have freedom to do pretty much anything you want that's not illegal. So as long as the other party is on board and they're you know down for you owning or fifty fifty, um, everything's pretty much pretty much fair game, especially with. Intellectual property transfer, um, you know, you can have clauses in there that's like if the client is on a payment plan and they don't pay by a certain date, then like ownership reverts back to copywriters. So you can get really creative with how uh, how you want it to to be fleshed out.
0: Okay. So uh, as a follow up to that, then um, I, I, I mean, I have a bunch of contract follow up questions, but what are like the the baseline must put it in your contract. We we've talked a little bit about payment terms. We've talked a little bit about IP. Is there anything else that you absolutely need to make sure that it gets into the contract, regardless of whether you know it favors you or the client?
1: Yeah, um, another huge one that's missing. If we have clients or copywriters that are drafting their own contracts, is usually some sort of termination or cancellation provision. So if your client is like not Giving you what they need, or they're just really behind on deadlines, and you can't complete what you had promised to. We might want to back out of that agreement. Or if the client is just like a nightmare client and they're making it really difficult, you want some way for you to be able to exit that relationship without the client majorly breaching something. So if we don't have a provision in there, usually we have to be able to show that the client has done something to breach the agreement, which is sometimes tough. Uh, but we want something in there that says, like, look, I can back out if we're just not getting along. Uh, termination, confidentiality is another good one just to assure the client, like, look, if we're working on a project that you're not even announcing or launching for in another year, we want to make them feel good that, like, look, we're not going to be releasing information. Same thing in return. If you're, you know, hopping on calls, showing them kind of your framework, we don't want them sharing, you know, your information with anybody else that they're that they're working with. So confidentiality provisions are, are really important too. And then uh, liability, just discussing like who's responsible for what, especially if you are working with a third party that's helping you with something. So like if you're helping them implement copy on the website and like website goes down, that's not your fault. You're helping them implement it, but you're not taking full responsibility of like if Squarespace is just down for weeks on end. Um, So liability is another good one too.
0: One other thing that you didn't mention, but it comes up a lot when we talk to copywriters is indemnification clauses. Mm -hmm. So usually those show up when the client is, asking the copywriter to use their contract instead of the other way around. But it, it tends to freak people out, um, yeah. <laughs> for, maybe for good reason. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Should we should be worried about that at all? Or, or you know, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Indemnification and liability kind of are similar, not the same, but they they kind of are along the same lines of like, who's going to be responsible for what? Um, I think they're good to have as long as they are fair for both sides. So what we see frequently is if we have, uh, you know, somebody who's receiving a contract that has an indemnification provision, it doesn't always say both sides are just going to hold, not hold each other responsible. It'll usually say something like, I'm the person that's asking you to sign the contract. I don't want you to hold me responsible, but I can hold you responsible. So I think it's usually fair for it to be an equal indemnification clause. Um, And and those clauses are just drafted so confusing to everyone. Like we we get some and sometimes they don't even make sense and we have to tweak them a little bit. Um, But those are usually the ones that people are like, what is this? What does
0: this mean? Yeah, I I see a lot of people are like, holy cow, wait, if something goes wrong, it's all my fault and I'm gonna have to make them right. Like, uh, yeah, of course you're gonna freak out a little bit when you see something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're pretty, pretty standard.
2: What do you think about adding timelines to your contract? Because I add them to all of my contracts and I'm thinking maybe I shouldn't do that because then I actually have to hit the deadline.
1: Yeah. I think adding timelines could go either way where you know, if you are putting timelines in that you're expecting yourself to hit, um, you could always run into a snag where if you're not going to hit it, it could be an issue, but you can always approach the client and say like, look, something's happening, you know, can we, can we push it back? Um, what I do like to see is if you're expecting client to review something, review the copy or get you some information that you need, at least put them on a, t- on a timeframe or a timeline so that later you can say like, look, I promised to complete this for you, but like you gave me nothing by two weeks into the the whole project. So at least putting them on some sort of timeline or timeframe frame typically the client's not going to push back and ask you to also be on an equal, very strict timeframe. They might want to know like when you're going to complete it, but I generally wouldn't make any promises on like exact dates. Um, and if you have to do that, or if they want to do that, always put something in there that says like, if we need to change it, we can talk about it and amend the agreement.
2: Okay. And then if it's in an email though, isn't that still, I mean, it's still a legal document. So if I don't put it in my contract, but in an email to my client, I'm sending the milestones and a timeline, I guess it's still better than putting in the contract.
1: The ideally, if we can have something in the contract about the time, just to enforce it. Cause if, if we have something later where you're trying to say like, look, client, I asked you for this info two weeks out and you didn't give it to me, email technically is not included in the contract. So it's hard for us to, to incorporate that unless we are in the email specifically saying like, we're referring to the contract signed on blah, 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 kind of creating a paper trail. Um, but what we typically do is, is if the copywriter or service provider has a strict timeline, we'll kind of put that in there. If it needs to change, we tell them like, look, tell the client. we can if we can amend this or you know revise this can we can we both agree
0: okay so let's say you've got your contract all locked in everything's right something happens client refuses to pay or you know the, the project isn't moving forward like it's supposed to at what point is it worthwhile to actually try to enforce a contract so and the reason i ask is because you know most copywriters their projects are say $1,500 or $2,500. And of course they want that money, uh, you know, um, but to actually enforce the contract, now we've got to bring an attorney in and now we've got their fees. We might even have court fees if we, if it goes that far. Mm -hmm. So is there, you know, is there maybe an amount where it's like, okay, I don't want to wash my hands of this. I'm, I'm going to take this all the way versus it's probably better for me just to walk away from, from this particular contract.
1: Yeah, I think based on local state rules on your small claims court and what their limits are, um, sometimes we're looking at that for service providers, like California's $10,000. So you have to be asking for damages have to be more than that, or excuse me, less than that to remain in small claims court. And then if they're more than that, then you can go to like actual court with an attorney um, so, if it is that, you know, 1500, 2K, we also want to balance like what hiring an attorney would even look like to review your paperwork. So, having the contract in place is important so that you can tell, you know, email the client, mail the client, be like, look, we are trying to enforce this. If you don't pay up, we're going to seek some sort of recourse. Nine times out of 10, that usually fix the problem because the client freaks out and then they're like, I don't want to get sued. Um, but if we do have to take additional steps, we can look at small claims court if the amount is not enough to get us to regular court. Small claims court is generally pretty inexpensive. So even with a $1,500, $2,000 amount, I sometimes still recommend if client wants to deal with the stress or you know having to enforce it on their own. I think it's cheap enough for them to get. If they're getting something back, they're at least getting enough. Um, and then if they don't want to have to take it to small claims court, sometimes we just look at collections because collections will, um, collections agencies will just take a cut of whatever they can receive in return. Um, but threatening legal action or threatening collections a lot of times prompts the clients to just, just pay up. Um, but I think definitely looking at how much something is going to cost, like attorney to file a lawsuit is in court is going to probably cost you just immediately somewhere between like five and 10 K. So we don't want to hire an attorney for. Well, well you might want to. Yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's a little. Although I, I suppose somewhere between me threatening them and going to court, you could also have an attorney write, uh, you know, a letter, right? It's saying, "Hey, we may do this and that." Sometimes carries a little bit more authority uh, and might force a payment or force whatever you're trying to do.
1: Yeah, we we can do demand letters. Um, a lot of attorneys will charge like we charge around seven fifty for demand letters. So if you're balancing an amount where you're like. I don't know if this is worth it. Um and we can't guarantee that they'll respond to the demand letter, but if we think it's going to work, then at least you're not out like that full 1500, 2k. You might get something back even though you had to pay, you know, us to enforce or a collections agency to enforce.
2: This is just stressing me out just talking about collecting money. It's bringing I have lots of flashbacks. Um <laughs> let's shift and talk about uh Entities and uh, how we should think about LLC versus all the different options. You know, this is something we've talked through previously on the podcast, but it still confuses many of us. Like, what are we supposed to be? Which one's the best for us?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Most states, uh, I'm in California, but most states have LLCs, limited liability companies, uh, for you as an option. They're not required, but they are a really good option to separate the liability from your personal situation from your business. Um, so if you don't have that LLC and you don't have a formal business legal entity, technically your personal assets, personal liability and business liability are tied together. And if you the business gets sued, they can re- reach your personal assets. Um, so uh, LLCs are typically what we're looking at for copywriters, service providers, unless we have some other thing like we maybe want to become a nonprofit at some point or something like that, we might go in a different direction. But LLCs are usually the best uh, decision just because they give you that uh, legal protection. They're also super flexible and they're easier to maintain than like a corporation or another sort of entity that might have more formal requirements. But LLCs are usually the best. And from a legal standpoint, like I think they're great to hop into as soon as you can get into them. Most clients that we have are really making the decision based on finances, like how much does it cost to run the LLC? From a tax perspective, what's that gonna look like? So most people make the decision financially, but legally I do encourage them, uh, you know, as soon as they're
0: affordable. So while we're talking about empties, um some copywriters will uh, form a corporation and and elect to be taxed as an S corporation. I think we do that for tax reasons. There there may be some additional financial benefits there. Is there a legal difference between those two other than maybe the additional filing required every year?
1: The S corporation tax election is an option if you are an LLC or if you're a corporation. So what you can do is form an LLC and then elect to be taxed as an S-corp. So then you're not dealing with the legal requirements of a a corporation. You're just being taxed as one. Uh, But yeah, that's that's definitely an added benefit if your tax professional has said like, look, being taxed as an S-corp is going to be more financially advantageous for you. We can save you money. Uh, but from a legal perspective, if we are an LLC being taxed as an S corp, it doesn't really affect the legal status of the business. Everything still kind of remains the same.
0: Okay, good to know.
2: So I, I'm an S corp, and should I should I now take five steps back, which is very typical in my life, to now become an LLC too? Because my attorney are, recommended are, becoming an S corp? But now I'm wondering you, if that was the best option.
1: Are you S corp? that S corp is a tax selection. So do you know if you're, you started as LLC or a corporation?
2: A corporation.
1: Okay. Um, I mean, you could, what we usually recommend is LLC, but unless you needed to be a corporation for some reason. So some States have requirements that if you're offering like professionally licensed services, you have to go into a corporation. You can't form an LLC. For copywriting services, typically we can hop into an LLC and it's uh, less filing fees per year. Like, for example, in California for an LLC, you only file updates with the state every two years versus one year. Um, Tax wise, there's less formalities for LLCs. So it's not terrible to be to start as a corporation. It's just there's more formalities that might you know be annoying long term, or it might be a little bit more expensive long term to to complete the
2: filings. Okay, yeah. Well, we'll we'll chat about how we can chat afterwards so I can fix that.
0: (laughs) I wish there was an easy answer to this though, because it is it's a little frustrating, you know, to to think about, okay, you know, should it be LLC? Should it be a corporation with an S-corp election? And oftentimes you'll get varying advice from an attorney versus a tax professional. And it, it feels like there are no right answers, but there could be some really wrong answers here. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, in that situation that's that's not a bad thing. The I what I mean, I always advise our clients like I'm going to give you the legal perspective on what entity we're recommending, but your tax professional will also give you advice and then we have to meet somewhere in the middle and I kind of I don't stand back, but I understand most people are making decisions based on a financial uh perspective of like what's going to save me the most money. So I will tell them like I think an LLC is great or you know hop into an entity earlier than later but some people just don't have to pay for it um you know some people do like some people will form a corporation just because it sounds cool versus an That's llc probably where and, i did it but like there are benefits to that where if you say like i'm a corporation like some people mentally will be more impressed by that so you know that does have some benefits <laughs> um but i I've, I've had clients make decisions solely on that too like they're only hopping into an entity because They are like content creators and they want to be taken more seriously. So they are immediately forming like a corporation. And I'm like, you don't need that. But
2: if you, if you want it, you can have
0: it. I am very impressed by your corporation. I just wanted
2: to impress you, Rob. So that's why I was like, it's gotta be a corporation. It's gotta be. they, They sound, they're very impressive.
0: They, they sound <laughs> the, the, Yeah, the big, uh, enormous companies that we, that we all run from, <laughs> from our offices. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about contracts. We've talked about entities. What are some of the other legal considerations when it comes to running businesses that we need to be thinking about? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some that I, I could mention, but I'm, I'm leaving it open because I would love to hear what you think is most important.
1: Yeah, the the big three I usually hit on are contracts, entities, and then trademark. So like business name and and your branding, um, and copywriters. Depending on like if you're doing copy or if you're helping businesses also with branding as well, it's good to not only understand your own trademarks and branding, but be able to have open conversations with your clients of like if I'm helping you with you know some branding too. We have to understand like what I own versus what you own um, but yeah the the branding aspect is understanding business name, logo slogan, and how those are directly connected to our business. do we own them? can we register them? That's kind of where the trademark conversation comes in.
2: yeah, I just figure that if I put a TM on anything that I own it because that's what I read somewhere. So is that is that accurate? Do I have to go through the whole trademarking process if I just can slap a TM on it and I'm like that's mine?
1: Technically, when you start using a name or like a logo or slogan, you do have immediate trademark rights in the the name or the logo slogan. They're not broad enough or registered though. So if we ever have to, you know, deal with some sort of dispute, it's going to be kind of limited. So that's where we do encourage business owners, like especially if you're offering services across the U.S. um, and we have a business name that like we love and we want to make sure that we can actually continue using. We encourage at least looking into the trademark process. I think what's most important is that if you're using a business name that you can't use long term, like if somebody else owns it or somebody else is using it, it's not going to be fun to to rebrand later have to deal with that process later so entering the trademark you know clearance process i think is good just from a business owner perspective like can i use this name am i cleared for the future and then registering it ideally at the federal level if we're eligible so that we have a registered trademark it's listed at the federal level Um, it'll deter other businesses hopefully from using your business name so we don't end up having disputes It's kind of like having a title to a vehicle, like if you ever have to prove ownership, if it's in your driveway, like, you know, it's going to look like it's yours. But if we have the title, it is so much easier to be able to show ownership and to actually prove that we that we own it.
0: And what are some typical costs for this kind of thing? I, and I imagine like, you know, if my, if my business name is Kira Hug Media, there may not be that many people that want to take it. But for something that's maybe got a broader name, like the Copywriter Club, uh, obviously we, we want to have a trademark there that's registered. What does it cost to go through that process so that I know uh, I own my business name?
1: Yeah, the, we have two kind of levels that we can look at. We have state and federal Um, Here in California, the price is just to file. Like if you didn't hire a filing service or an attorney to help you, filing fees are $70. At the federal level, if you do it on your own, you're not hiring any help. Filing fees are $250 uh, per class of goods and services. So let's say you want to protect your copywriting services and that's all you're offering um, and you go to file with the trademark office, you're probably only going to fall into one class if you're a copywriter that also is selling apparel and then you're doing like maybe some consulting on the side, we might be falling into a couple different classes. So the, the filing fees could could rack up there. Um, but bare minimum, we're paying usually around like 70 to 100 at the state level and then federal level 250.
0: And why would we want to do a state registration as opposed to a federal registration? When would when would you differentiate between the two?
1: The state level, we're usually looking at state level if your services don't go outside your state. So to be eligible for federal level, you have to show use in commerce, meaning you're selling your services outside of just your state. So if we're like a local barbershop or like a nail salon in I don't know, Minnesota and we never are going outside of our state and we want to protect, we can look at state level protection if we have an online e-commerce or we're a copywriter that we're serving clients outside of just our state then we can elevate it to federal level protection which is going to get us protection in all 50 states not just our individual state which if we can get federal and we're eligible for it i usually recommend that
0: and then last question at least for me on this um is there ever a reason that i would want to protect in other countries you know do i want to register in canada or australia or china
1: Yeah. If you do offer services or plan to offer services in those countries, it's definitely an option um, because the protection that you get at the federal level only extends to the United States. So if we do, let's say, have clients in like Mexico, our business name, if it's registered in the U.S., is not protected also in Mexico. Each country, unfortunately, has its own rules. So we have to look at, you know, where are you offering your services If you had like one client out of country and you'd never anticipate having another client outside of the U.S. again, like I don't think it's super necessary. But if you're building your client base outside of the U.S., we probably should be looking outside um, of the U.S. as well for protection too.
2: Well, I want to shift to talking a little bit about AI because it's hard not to these days. So when you're thinking about use cases for AI, for writers, for copywriters, like what are you most concerned about that you think we should be most concerned about?
1: Yeah, I think with AI, um, I mean, I know copywriters some, well, the ones I know don't encourage using it just because it's obviously better to have a copywriter write your copy. Uh, But if we're plugging something into AI, we whatever the output is technically cannot be protected from an intellectual property standpoint. So if you are, you know, trying to plug and chug some copy for your own website and you use AI for it, you have to know that long-term like, well, at least currently as the laws are, are unfolding, you cannot protect that copy. So if you can't protect it, then anybody else can come grab it and it's kind of fair game. So if you have a copywriter that's written copy for you and it's on your website and they've transferred ownership to you and you're the business and it's like amazing, you can go and protect that. So ideally, the protected material is more of a business asset, has a higher value than something that's not able to be protected. Um, So right now, as the laws are coming down, AI generated material In and of itself as the content cannot be protected from a copyright standpoint if you change that material in some way whatever you change could potentially be protectable um but there's so the laws are very not caught up with the ai uh kind of boom right now so there are people you know trying to kind of challenge like what that means like if you're inputting something into ai like Can you still protect the output because you had to put enough into it for it to generate something for you? Uh, But as of right now, at least just understanding if you're using AI, the output is not protectable, which generally means it's not as valuable as something that like a human has created for you.
0: Uh, What about the risks going the other way? So let's say that I take some client information, you know, maybe their testimonials or it's sales copy, and I put it into an AI engine in order to generate whatever it is that I need. What are the risks for me as a business in doing that uh, from maybe a privacy standpoint?
1: Yeah. So right now the AI generators have not really done a very good job of guaranteeing privacy. Um, So, most lawyers are counseling businesses just not to put anything in AI that is private information. Um, so if you have, you know, a client testimonial that you want reworded, um, that could, well, there could other, there could be other issues there from a copyright perspective, but if it's a testimonial that's public, that's not really private information. If you're taking clients like very private information to generate into AI, generally not recommended right now just because the ai platforms have not come out and made it super secure yet um so that's kind of where most lawyers stand right now is like don't put private information into ai even like your own private information because they haven't made it very clear how they're collecting that information and what they're doing with it
0: so um maybe as a as a test um idea or test case around this the internet went kind of crazy this week because it became apparent that zoom uh is basically letting everybody opt into total uh, use of anything that's done on a zoom call so as a sole proprietor if i'm using zoom to communicate with my client and they're sharing that information Mm -hmm. am i assuming some risk there as well, or or is that because they're sharing it? The risks is on them. Like, what does? And I I know you're you're probably gonna say we don't know yet because the lie isn't settled, but uh, this is something that's worth worrying about. If yeah. uh, you know, if clients get upset,
1: yeah, no, yeah, I actually emailed clients like last night with an email basically saying like, if you use Zoom, here's what's happening. I wouldn't recommend continuing right now just because they've changed their terms. Um, and I have halted using Zoom with clients for the time being until they've figured out or clarified what's going on. Um, if you owe a duty to keep client information private, then we could actually have some issues where you can get in trouble, even if you have them on a call and they're inputting, like, or if you're just talking about things. So like, that's why we have a duty to keep client information confidential. So I'm not even allowing zoom calls. Cause I don't, I don't know what they're collecting and I don't know what they're doing with it right now. Um, if you want to keep client information confidential, or you think they're going to give you something confidential, like i probably would not be using the platform right now. And we've told clients, like, if you have something else, just just use that for now until they clarify what's going on. Um, I know they did make some changes yesterday uh, to try and tweak what they said that they're collecting and how it's being used for AI. <clears throat> but I think they clarified what they're using or not using for AI, but they didn't really clarify what it is they're collecting and what they're using it for. So we're kind of, like, not very clear on what's happening right now. So we just halted use for the time being. Um, but yeah, especially if you're any platforms, so that can go for any platform. So like, if you have, uh, you know, some of our copywriters are using like Dubsado or other platforms to share confidential information, read their terms of service, see how they handle, you know, confidential information. Um, what happens if there's a breach, you know, are you, are you sharing email or excuse me, information on email? Or are we sharing it on platforms? It's always good as a business owner to do like a check of how you're sharing information and understand how those platforms are collecting or like what sort of security that they have for, for you as a user.
2: I'm going back to the contract because I'm thinking about AI language in the contract. And especially now that I'm using AI tools, I want to make sure I'm including that and protected in my contract. And then, you know, also clearly communicating that. So I'm not hiding anything. What would mm-hmm. you recommend thinking about as I add that to a contract?
1: Yeah, I think if you want to have the open dialogue with the client, just to say that, you know, you do utilize it um, just so that they know so that later they're not like, I didn't know you were using this. Um I think it's good to be open with them, but then also because it's in the contract that might call attention to it. So they might be like freaking out. So you can explain like what you're doing to, you know, change it or like how you're using it if you want to, to, to be transparent with them. Um, But to my understanding, there's no like requirement that you have to tell them that you're using it. So if you want to be open and transparent you can, you can let them know just so that if they like generate the same thing and are like, are you using AI? At least you, you've told them ahead of time.
2: Yeah. I mean, I want to be transparent, but not, I don't want it to be front and center. So then I'm thinking, well, do you just add all the tools you use in a section of your contract just to show that like there to send the message? I use many tools. This is just one of them. Um, so maybe there's some education needed in the contract as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, you don't have to necessarily tell them unless you're in like certain uh, certain fields. Sometimes you have to disclose like what platforms you're using, especially with like HIPAA and anybody in the medical therapy industry. Um, but yeah, being, I mean, open and transparent with them is... Also can show that like you're understanding and aware of current technology and you're using it, and I think that also gives you a benefit as a copywriter of like you're you're not like just completely ignoring everything that's going on with AI and you're you know using it to your to your advantage, but you know you know your, your clients best, so either disclosing or not disclosing to them. Totally, totally okay.
0: Okay, two other areas where uh, it feels, I'm sure there are more than two, but where it feels like legal sort of um, collides a little bit with what we do as copywriters. One is website policies, privacy policies, that kind of stuff. And the second is email policies, can spam, GDPR, that kind of stuff. And so um, let me first ask about privacy policies, website, you know, use user agreements, those kinds of things. How critical are they um, to to have, to use? Are we putting ourselves at significant risk if we don't have privacy policies or if we're not advertising that up front?
1: So from the perspective of just being a business owner and on your own website, privacy policies are required. Terms and conditions are highly encouraged. Um, And then having potentially other policies on your site could be important, but privacy policy is the big one that's required. Um, When you're going to potentially help With a client, like if the client needs assistance with that, that's where I tell our clients, especially like copywriters, web designers, like you are not responsible for that legally. They need to go talk to an attorney, but it's good to have the knowledge of what so you can have the conversation with them of like, here's what, you know, we generally know is expected, um, especially if you're helping them with copy for like anything in medical, financial, legal Um, you want them to be the ones responsible for like, if they're breaking a law or like if they're pushing it too far or need a disclaimer, they need to be responsible for that. You're just, you know, helping them create copy around the topics or the subject. Um, So from the service provider perspective, I think it's important to know and understand like a a good idea of what you need, but also have the conversation with the client. Like, look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to tell you what it is that you need. I can't tell you what the local rules are but here's what I know that you usually need. And like, here's places I would suggest like grabbing that or like, you know, maybe finding it. But I tell our clients that deal with this type of stuff, like do not draft anything. Um, you know, even if they ask you to, like that can put you in a situation where you could potentially get sued later for like having drafted a privacy policy or something like that.
0: So copywriters specifically should never write a privacy policy. That's, that's, but we want we want to have them on our own websites that are that are written by a, a competent attorney.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ideally, like also like we understand like business budgets are not uh, always going to be able to afford like an attorney drafting every single thing, but like ideally having an attorney draft your privacy policy so that it's on your website as the service provider, and then if you're counseling or guiding clients on like what you need, what they need on their website just being able to have the conversation of like, look, this is what we think you need, but you need to go talk to an attorney. And once they come back and tell you what you need, like we can, you know, maybe help you place it or like figure out where it needs to go. But um, copywriters, I just tell them from a liability perspective, like don't, don't draft that stuff.
2: So because we're chatting on a podcast, I saw I think an article on your site about podcast legality. So as podcast hosts um, and people who frequently speak on podcasts, what should we think about legally that we probably aren't?
1: Yeah. Um, mostly podcasts are like pretty much a business in themselves. So kind of similar to things that we covered, like if you um, want to consider an entity for the podcast, like if you want to completely separate what the podcast is doing from business-wise from all the other aspects of the business, we can always you know form an LLC, completely separate it um, trademark. So looking at the name, you know, potentially protecting it, clearing it, um, contracts between you two potentially. So, you know, what each of you is responsible for, like if you guys are getting, you know, ad payments at all, like how does that split up? So potential partnership agreement, um, what else do we have? And then any like advertisers you're working with or like sponsors, making sure those are on agreement and that we understand what's expected from both sides. Uh, But podcasts are like, I think they're fun because it's basically like a a business in itself. And it's a good example of all the things that a business should should be covering.
2: Well, I think you also mentioned getting a contract with your podcast guests. Is that true? Ideally, you want to have your
1: guests sign an agreement just stating that they are waiving their rights to name likeness whatever they've said not that i'm going to do it but like technically if somebody came back and said like i don't want you releasing that episode because and i didn't release the rights you would have to yank it down um so i mean most podcasters if they got that request they would just do it usually probably anyway out of respect but um where we sometimes see it is if like you interview a guest and then they become like completely ridiculously famous, like the next year. Um, and you have like this great interview, but we didn't get them to release anything. They could come back and say like, sorry, yank it down. You know, we didn't like what we said in
0: the interview. Yeah, that's uh, that's smart. Um, okay, so I want to come back to GDPR, can't spam stuff for email. Most copywriters deal with email at some level. I know we're like, we've got these laws, we're supposed to follow the regulations, GDPR doesn't necessarily apply in the States, Canada, California, maybe have higher regulations, but honestly, it feels like everybody has just been ignoring all of that stuff. And there has been, you know, very little legal ramifications so you don't need to justify why the laws were passed, but like, again, how much risk is there for somebody who may be ignoring, uh, you know, some of the GDPR stuff that doesn't necessarily apply locally but might apply internationally?
1: Yeah, um, GDPR is good to pay attention to, even if you know you're not serving clients over overseas. Uh, because technically it will apply to anyone whose website is like viewable by anyone over there. GDPR is super strict, but California is coming up right in the wings with just being as just as strict. So um, importantly, having the proper privacy policy on your page, telling your uh, web viewer, your customer, whoever's landing on your website, what you're collecting from them and why you're collecting it. So that also kind of ties into your email, uh, you know, subscriber list. You got to make sure everybody is subscribing properly. If you're using, you know, one of the main email providers, like a ConvertKit, ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, they're doing a lot of the heavy, you know, legal work for you, making sure that you're compliant. Um, but once we kind of get that website viewer, capture their information, we have to tell them what we're doing that in- with that information Um, If we are a big enough business that we start to hit some of the California rules, so like if we're around 25 million mark, or if we are collecting information from, uh, what was it recently, 100,000 California individuals, then we have stricter rules. So if you've seen on websites recently of like big box stores, they now say you can like specifically opt out of giving them your information. So bigger companies are now subject to rules like that, where you have to provide an opportunity for you to opt out of collecting your personal info. Uh, But the privacy policy is really important to make sure you're telling them what you're collecting on the site. Email is like a whole nother world of, of things to be on the lookout for. But using those bigger platforms, they will provide, you know, the unsubscribe button for you on the bottom of your emails that you're sending out. Um, they'll usually make sure that you're collecting, uh, signups properly where it can get a little sticky, especially if you're a copywriter, either writing your own emails or writing emails for your clients is making sure that we're not doing anything funky in the email or in the subject lines that could be an issue. Nobody is really cracking down on this stuff. It's just good to know, like some of the stuff, like we can't be super, super misleading, um, in our, you know, email subject lines, um, we can't like lie about like what's in the email. Um, technically the thing where you write like regarding RE and then that's in your subject line, technically that's not okay. But like we see a bunch
2: of businesses <laughs> using it. There goes my launch strategy.
1: <laughs> but like realistically, this stuff is not being cracked down on. Um, it's usually the bigger companies that do stuff like that where attorneys will hop in and see an opportunity to make a ton of money
0: off of all the violations that they've they've hit so we're I feel safe, sorry bro. for anybody yeah i feel sorry for anybody who thinks that we've got a pile of money to go after um, <laughs> we're well safe. a lot of wasted a lot of wasted effort.
1: yeah usually what people will just do is like report the email as like you know breaking rules or something and then i think if you get enough of those your provider will be like hey what's going on um, so that'll probably happen before any major like lawsuit type of thing, but it's just good to be aware of that stuff because there are attorneys everywhere that love to sue for everything. So if they get enough of what they need, sometimes they just go after it.
2: Oh, okay. Well, let's wrap on a positive note and talk about how we can work with you because and all the different ways and what that looks like.
1: Yeah. um, So the the law firm's remote and we work with businesses all over the U.S. um, A ton here in California for like the entity formation type stuff. But with Trademark, we help clients all over the U.S. Um, Contracts depends on the type of agreement. Uh, We have to look at the jurisdiction, but we do have clients kind of all over for that. Um, So the law firm does a lot of foundational business protections and then uh, we also have a separate template shop that does have things like privacy policies, terms and conditions that we've crafted and customized templates for businesses that maybe don't have the budget right now to have an attorney completely do you know, their privacy policy or something like that, or contracts. Even we have a ton of contracts in there. Um, so that is also an option that we have as well because we in working with businesses that are new, like budget is number one concern. So I would rather someone have a, a template that maybe we didn't custom draft for them in that moment. But we have a template versus them not having anything in place.
0: That's good advice. Uh, thanks, Taylor, for jumping in answering so many of our legal questions. Some of them were maybe more focused on our business, but uh, hopefully <laughs> copywriters you know, will appreciate Uh, the advice that you've shared and uh, they can check you out we'll link to your site in the show notes thank you
1: yeah the uh questions are usually the best way for people to learn anyway i could talk and talk and talk but people want to hear other people's questions which is good
0: That's the end of our interview with Taylor Timon. I want to expand on a couple of things that Taylor mentioned and that Kira and I were asking about specifically why we may need the help of an attorney. You know, I'm a typical copywriter. I would push this stuff off to the very last possible minute. Uh, you know, maybe we get help. Like we mentioned when we're establishing an entity, maybe you use a tool like LegalZoom or some online uh, legal help, but, working with an actual attorney can can pay dividends especially when it comes to things like making sure that your contract is set up so that payment is actually going to happen making sure that you're protecting your intellectual property that's uh, huge and if you have uh, you know a framework if you have a business title that is unique to you uh, even your own name as as a business title um, but you know, however you, you want to be able to protect that. And this stuff is a big deal. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that you shouldn't wait three or four or five or 10 years until it becomes a problem. You want to, if at all possible, do it now. You know, we we talked a little bit about that intellectual property clause. Taylor mentioned something really specific and I think is really important. That is you can't protect ideas. Uh, Ideas are not protectable, but headlines, leads, uh, you know, our approach, our look, our feel, the elements that make up our brand are protectable. And those are the kinds of things that we want to do. So we don't necessarily need to worry about, you know, if I share an idea or, you know, somebody's going to copy the idea. Um, That stuff you can't protect anyway but when we, when it comes to intellectual property the specific to you frameworks the way that you work the way that you talk about your work that stuff can be protected and is definitely worth um making sure that you do that. Also, you know, we we talked a little bit about uh, email as a contract. Kira briefly mentioned this. You know, I think there's this idea out there that as long as it's spelled out in an email, that's as good as a contract. And while it's certainly better than nothing, it is not as good as a contract. And so you need a legal agreement to spell out, you know, when you're going to deliver things, when the client is going to pay, what they're going to deliver, how uh, as Taylor is talking about, you know, how you split up, who owns. What uh, what rights do you have to you know, use the final product that you've given to your client in your own marketing? And it, it's just important to have that. So don't rely on email as your contract. Uh, if you're going back and forth saying, yeah, I can do this for you know, $500 or $5,000 and this is what I'll deliver. And it's all in an email. You might feel like it's spelled out, but that legal agreement uh, that has all of the other protections in it is worth uh, figuring out. And so, you know, if you, uh, whether you find that as a, a template online or you work with an actual attorney to develop your own contract, which that's definitely the better way to go, um, it can be a little bit expensive. And so maybe a template gets you through the first few months until you can actually afford to do that. Do it. You're really protecting your individual assets here. And, you know, when you have a company setup that's that's different from you from your own entity. So you know as we talk about LLCs or corporations or S-corps, when you do that, you're basically protecting your personal assets from uh, from anything that might happen with your business. So let's say as a, a copywriter, you, know, you make some kind of a mistake. You make a claim uh, about a product that you're writing. You're for whatever reason your clients uh, agree. You know, or they they sign off on it, and of course that should absolve you from from any kind of liability, but it doesn't. Uh, they come back and say, "Wait, where did you get this thing? You know, we've had to you know issue refunds, or we're being sued because of this thing." If you have yourself set up as a company and you're not just, you know, a copywriter writing out of your home and everything's going into your personal bank account and all of that, you have some protection against those legal ramifications. They might be able to take assets out of your company. So if you've, you know, if you've got a little bit of money in a business bank account, they might be able to get that, but they won't be able to take your home. They won't be able to take you know, your individual assets, um, especially if you've got an attorney that can back you up. Now, obviously. It's not as clear cut as that. And so having a good relationship with an attorney that you can call on when you need them is important. But you want to make sure that you're putting this stuff into place, your legal agreements, your, uh, your company entities, making sure that those papers are filed with your state, with your, uh, with your, your government, so that that stuff uh, is, is taken care of. We talked a little bit about AI copy and the fact that it's really up in the air, what's protectable. Just last week, as I'm recording this, uh, you a know, week before it, it, the episode comes out, there was actually a, uh, a the first lawsuit that went through the federal courts in which the government is saying that AI-generated assets are not protectable right now. Uh, that something that is not created with uh, individual inputs is not protectable. And so just, you know, that's the very latest that's been happening there. Uh, Just be aware of what's happening with AI if you're using that in your business. And of course, all of us should be using the tools as best we can. But make sure that you're using them in a way that protects you and your clients, that you're not necessarily turning over a copy that's generated by an AI tool and representing that of the client as something that they can own and protect because uh, right now the government is saying it cannot be, and we don't want to be uh, in that position with our clients. And then finally, we talked a little bit about privacy policies. Taylor recommended we do not write them ourselves, and that, of course, is really good advice. There are some online generators that might be able to help you write your own, but I wouldn't even use those to provide them to your client. Make your clients go to an attorney or, or develop that on your own. But I've seen a ton of copywriter websites that do not have privacy policies and they are required. They are uh, something that all of us should have. And if even beyond the legal protections that it offers, it's a trust signal that Google looks for. So when Google is looking for copywriters to promote in its uh, search engine results, one of the trust factors that it's looking for is a privacy policy. And if you've got one on your website, that's just going to help Google know that you are a professional, that you are an expert, that you actually do the thing that you do, and that you've got things like terms and conditions, privacy policies in place. So think about doing getting those if you don't already have them in place uh, for your business. So I'm rambling on and repeating a lot of the stuff that Taylor said. Uh, we want to thank Taylor for joining us and diving into the details of the law and how to protect your business as a copywriter. If you'd like to connect with her or find out more about her services, her Instagram handle is LegalMia, and we'll link to her website in the show notes so you can check them out there. Just a quick reminder before we close, The Copywriter Accelerator is coming. Go to the thecopywriteraccelerator.com for more details now so that you'll be ready to grow your business in the coming year. 2024 is not very far away and if you get through the accelerator. You'll be ready to hit the ground running. Check it out. The copywriteraccelerator.com. That's the end of this episode of the copywriter club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review of the show that helps other listeners find us and lets us know what you think about what we're sharing. And also be sure to check out our other podcast about artificial intelligence and how copywriters and other creatives are using it to get better at what they do. That's at AI for creative entrepreneurs.com as well as on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and we will see you again next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money.